Well, good morning, Providence. How are you guys? Really? <laughs> well, we, uh, I'm certainly glad you're here, and, uh, and we are honored uh, that you would join us today. If you're a guest, uh, then it is our joy uh, that you would step into this place with us uh, and that we would have an opportunity uh, to speak uh, to you uh, about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and to worship you. If, um, if you are joining us and uh, church is new to you, uh, we're going to be looking at the Bible this morning. And if you don't have one, uh, there should be one in a chair in front of you, uh, somewhere in, in one or two of the chairs in front of you. You can take that Bible and uh, we'd love for you to keep that uh, as a gift from us to you. We don't think that there's anything more important that you could listen to in your life than the Word of God. And uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to get to the book of Ephesians, which is uh, found in that particular Bible on the page. I think it's page uh, 978. And uh, you can flip there and just kind of put your finger there. We're going to take a little bit of time before we get there, but we're going to land there before we're, before we're said and done. Um, if you're joining us for the first time this week, uh, then we're actually in week five uh, of a summer series on a life of worship. And uh, when Brian began this uh, series back five weeks ago, he set a definition of, uh, of worship before us that I'm going to use this morning, actually, uh, to walk uh, through a couple of things. So I want to uh, remind you guys of, of what Brian said in that first week. Uh, this is what Brian said about worship. Our worship is our joyful and sacrificial response uh, to two things in particular, the worth and the work of God, all right? So as we think about marriage this morning, we're gonna look at it in the context of a life of worship. And worship, rightly understood, is our joyful and sacrificial response uh, to the worth and the work of God. God's worth is rooted in its inherent greatness. Now, what that means is that we don't attribute worth to God right? Like we don't get to give that to God. It's his. Uh, So whether we recognize it or not, God is worthy of our worship. We don't have to look very far to see that. We can look at the things that he's made. And and, and if, if that's the only picture of God that we had, it would be enough for us to be amazed at his perfection, at his goodness, at his attention to detail. And he would be worthy of our worship. But our joy is at its fullest when we recognize and see his worth in the things that he's made and we respond to it when we worship him, right? And so we were actually made for this. When God made us, he created us. He knit us to be worshipers. We were made for his glory and for our good. And so, and so if we really look at that at, at its heartbeat, we were made to worship God. In fact, there's a contemporary theologian that said this, all of history from the beginning going forward, all of history is moving toward one great goal. And that's the white hot worship of God and his son among all the peoples of this earth. We were made for one thing, for the glory of God and to worship him. But in the absence of recognizing him, his worth and his work, we'll worship anything. And that's where we fall so far off track of what God intends for us. So worship isn't only a response to who God is and, and his worth, but it's also a response to his work. And we understand what God has done and what he is doing through what he's revealed to us through the pages of scripture. That's why we think the Bible is so important. 
because we see God's work, what he's about in the pages that he wrote on the hearts of men and that we hold in our hands. And that Bible tells one primary story from start to finish, even though it's written over thousands of years by dozens of people, it's all about one story. And that story is a story of God displaying his glory, his worth to the ends of the earth so that we can see it as part of his creation, so that we can know him. That's God's intent in displaying his glory is so that we can see it, we can know him, and we can enjoy him forever. And it's a really big story. And the good news is that we're a part of that. We're a part of that story. And, and in a nutshell, that story from start to finish actually looks a little bit like this. And if you're, if you're not new to us, then this is going to be really familiar to you. But this is just a great way to capture that story. God made the world good and perfect in the beginning. There was no sin. And in that world that he created, God made man. He made us as the pinnacle of his creation in his image, unlike anything else that he made He made us in his image and he placed man, he placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them perfect fellowship with one another and with him. They worshiped God as they were designed to do in the beginning, but it didn't take very long for that to run amok. In a a moment of weakness, Adam and Eve took their eyes off of the worth of God And they looked at themselves and they began to question God's goodness to them. Does God really have our best interest at heart? And as a result of that, in an act of disobedience, they sinned. And what came out of that sin is incredible brokenness. And that's really where we live today. I don't care who you are, we understand this concept of brokenness because it's all around us and in many of us, if we're honest, it's in our very lives. And we try anything to fix this brokenness, right? We'll chase after anything to right what we feel is missing and, and, and right what's wrong in our lives. And even if we find a way to fix it temporarily, it never stays that way. Our problems never really go away. And if if this were where the story ended, we would be in a really bad place. This would be a, a really sad story with a really broken ending. But God had different plans. And from the beginning, God knew that he would need to fix our brokenness. And that's where something miraculous happens. The gospel breaks into this life. The gospel is simply this, that God, in a moment of miraculous intervention, he condescended, he became what he created. He stepped onto this earth in the form of Jesus Christ. And he lived a sinless life. And then he did something unthinkable. He went to a cross to die on the cross for our sins, our brokenness, not his. And he did that freely And on that cross, he paid for our sins so that our relationship with him might be reconciled. And all that we have to do, the crazy thing about the gospel is all that we have to do is repent, know we're broken, admit it, and know that there's only one fix to it. And that fix is Jesus Christ. And if we simply repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, then God does something else miraculous. He takes a broken heart and a messed up life and he gives us a new heart, a heart that can worship him rightly and know who he is 
He restores what was broken. And not only does he restore what was broken in our lives because of the gift of the Holy Spirit and because he's placed a new heart in us, he then allows us, gives us the ability to pursue what was intended in the garden, perfect relationship with him. And that's the story of the Bible from start to finish. It's all pointing toward that. It's really all pointing toward what was in the middle, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And I believe through the lens of the gospel, we can see God for who he is and we can see uh, God for what he's done. And we can then live all of our lives in response to his worth and his work, both in the past, the present work of God, and what we know is coming in the future. And so all of life can become a marvelous act of worship. And so this morning, we shift our attention to a piece of life to see how it can be both an act of worship and can lead us to worship. And that piece of life or that component of life is marriage. So let me pray and then uh, we'll hop into the scriptures and see what God has to say about marriage and worship. Father, thank you for your grace to us. God, I pray right now uh, that the words that are heard are your words. That whatever we come to the table with in our idea of marriage, it's brokenness or, or it's goodness, that we might look to you for the real answer and that in doing so, we might worship you seeing what you've created and that in turn, that we might rightly uphold marriage and that you might be honored and glorified, not only by us and our lives, but by those who see it and marvel at what you're at work doing. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, amen. So I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever seen something or been somewhere or seen something so beautiful that words just could not capture it? Like there's just no way that words can describe what, uh, what you've seen. Um, I've been a lot of really pretty places in the world. I want to put a picture up of one of these places. Um, and this, the picture doesn't capture it, but this is a place called Hell's Canyon. Maybe it's appropriately, <laughs> appropriately titled, but it's on the border of Idaho and Oregon. All right, and, that, and the river that you see in the picture, that's actually the Snake River. And uh, it separates the two states, and there's a wilderness area called Hell's Canyon, and they call it that for a reason. It's pretty brutal, but it's incredibly beautiful. And, uh, and, and it's also incredibly dry. And I can put this picture up, and unless you've been to this place in our country, in our world, you can look at that and go, that, that's pretty, but it's not the same as standing there and looking at it. You cannot grasp the depth of the beauty of what it is through a picture or through me trying to use words to describe it. And God paints a picture of marriage like this. So I want us to look uh, for just a second at Matthew 19 and what Jesus says when he's questioned about marriage. Uh, and, and hopefully you'll see how God sets up a picture that's almost impossible to grasp in our terms, all right? This is what uh, Jesus says in Matthew. Some Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking a question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh so that they're no longer one or two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they, the Pharisees said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, 
Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then his own disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So what's going on here? These men, his disciples, what I want you to see is the disciples' response to what they heard Jesus say to the Pharisees. These men had lived their, the lives of their last few years with Jesus Christ, God on this earth. They had given up homes and families and jobs to follow this one man that they believed to be the Messiah. And these men, right, these followers of Jesus, upon hearing Jesus speak of marriage in light of God's purpose, and not man's laws, not what Moses said, but what God had intended in the beginning, they could not wrap their minds around it. They could not grasp the depth of the beauty of what marriage was intended to be. And their response to this picture of marriage that Jesus painted was this. If it's true, then it's just better not to be married. Jesus' view of marriage was so grand and with such high expectations that his own disciples didn't see it as feasible. And that probably ought to scare us a little bit. Or at a minimum, we ought to marvel at what God painted in the beginning. It's a picture of what marriage looks like. And so that leads me to my first point And we'll look at Genesis to to be able to see this, but I believe that we see the worth and the work of God in marriage. When we see him, God is the author of marriage and it, marriage, is part of his good design. And what was it that Jesus was pointing the Pharisees and the disciples who heard him back to? Well, he was pointing back to what God had done in the beginning. So what did God do in the beginning? Well, there are two things in particular that I think God was doing in Genesis that set up this idea of this glorious picture of marriage. First of all, when he made man, he says in Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God made man and woman unique among everything that he created. No other thing in creation was, was given the distinct privilege of being made in the image of God. So already right off the bat, there's something unique about man and woman. They're made in God's image to reflect the glory of the creator. But he goes on to say uh, in, in this handiwork in, in chapter two, he, we actually see where he creates Eve in response to something. And this is what Genesis two verses 18, it really between 18 and 22. And I'm gonna read a few of these verses. You can, I think you can see them on the screen. The Lord God said, it's not good after he made everything and, and, he, and he brought man, just Adam was in the garden. He said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make for him a helper fit for him. And then he goes on to say, the Lord caused, Adam to have a deep sleep. And while he slept, uh, he took one of his ribs and he closed it up with flesh. And then the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman, into Eve. And then he brought her to him, to Adam. Guys, it's incredible that in, in the beginning, in the garden, that God said everything he made was good. At every point of creation, he says it is good. It is good, it is good. He makes man, it's very good, right? And the only thing that we have in the beginning of Genesis that God says is not good is his solitude. 
man. It's not good that he should be alone. And God's answer to what was not good was a wife. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Really? (laughs) Are you serious, God? But that's the picture that he paints. God, in his wisdom, said, it's not good that man should be alone. And then he orchestrates the first marriage that we have in the Bible. God, the father who made Eve, brings Eve to Adam and gives her to him. And they're joined together. And Jesus says, that's what was intended. That's what was intended in marriage, that they were joined by the one who made them. And it's a miraculous union that's meant to reflect something else. We'll see in a minute. So what do we do with this? If, if, we, if we see the work uh, and the worth of God in marriage when we see him as the author, then, then here's an application for us. Let us esteem marriage as God's good creation. Because I don't, I don't know where uh, you, got, you are. Some of you may be sitting in these chairs today in a marriage that you feel like is on the brink of disaster. And you, and you believe in your heart it's not worth it anymore. Let me tell you it is. Because God made it. And he intended it for something very good. And he intended even for those who are not in a covenant union of marriage to esteem marriage because of what God says it represents. Hebrews 13.4 tells us, let marriage be held in high honor among all. And I want to take a second because I know that this auditorium is full of people that, that are all along life spectrum. And some of you in this room today, you're here and you're not married either by choice or by circumstance. And to even talk about marriage may be really painful for you for a whole host of reasons. So let me simply say to you, don't let the pain of what you feel, either the absence of something or something that's been taken from you, keep you from seeing the glorious nature of what God has made in marriage. Even if you are not in a covenant relationship with someone, you can look at marriage and esteem it. And we ought to do that. We ought to hold it in high regard. Now, why should we do that? Well, Genesis doesn't tell us that whole story, right? And so we jump forward to the New Testament and suddenly we see with the coming of Christ what God has intended from the beginning. And that's why Jesus points back to it. And so we're gonna get now to Ephesians chapter five. And uh, I wanna read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Uh, and then we're gonna, we're gonna hop through two more points and see if we can't unpack uh, this passage. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and his body and is himself its savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also the wives should submit in everything under the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands love your wives as your own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. 
body. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Out of this passage, I think we see two additional points. And the first is this, that we see the worth and the work of God in marriage when we recognize that God's glory is the point of marriage. And most of us either think too highly of marriage or we don't think highly enough of it. And where we fall on the spectrum of thinking too highly or not highly enough has everything to do with what we perceive to be the point or the end goal of marriage. And I believe that the thread of the gospel is present in all of life, that everything made in this earth points to the work of God as our creator and to his worth. But I also believe that there may be no better earthly example of the grace and forgiveness in the gospel than what we see in the picture of a marriage between two broken people. Marriage is an echo of the covenant relationship of God with his people, and it's about him. God invented and ordained earthly marriage to show us what his love for us looks like. We should look at a a union between a man and a woman and marvel that that's a picture of how God loves us. And our marriages were never meant to be the end goal of that. They're just shadows of that bigger reality. If the primary end goal of our marriage is our personal satisfaction, then we'll be sorely disappointed over and over again. And if we reduce the meaning of marriage to, or even the purpose of marriage to ourselves or our personal gain or the benefit that we we may gain from it, then we've sold marriage far short of what God says that it should be. If, If marriage and not God is the object of our worship, then we've become idolaters. When we look to marriage to fulfill something in us, our personal satisfaction or the meaning of our existence or the need to be needed or wanted, then we're seeking to gain from marriage what only God was meant to fulfill in us. Now, don't miss what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying that marriages aren't important. They're incredibly important, but they're not what's most important. What's most important is that God is rightly glorified and that happens through a reconciled relationship with Jesus Christ, our savior. And marriage by design of God, rightly understood and lived out reflects that overarching truth. It leads us toward that goal. So as a point of application, let's be mindful to keep the focus of marriage on Jesus and the gospel. Guys, You'll love your wives better if you love Jesus more. I know that sounds counterintuitive. But if you love Jesus more, then you will live in response to who he is and what he's done for you and you'll follow his commands. And in doing so, you will consider others, your wife, as more important than yourself. And you'll seek to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And because you love him, you will love her better when you have the right perspective. So I want you to take a look at a video and then we're gonna land on the final point uh, in response to what the video and the text shows us. Heather and I met in uh, law school at Carolina. Um, We uh, 
uh, actually met at orientation. Uh, or there was an open house that they had a few weeks before school started. And he was sitting in the row right behind um, me. And my mom was there with me. And At a point during a break, uh, I announced to everybody that I was still looking for a roommate and for a place to live. My mom wraps her arm around me and looks back at him and says, not with my baby girl. Uh, and so we got a big chuckle out of that. Uh, not nearly as much of a chuckle as we got a couple years later as we got to know each other more. So we went the whole first year of school without talking. Um, and the second year, we were in a class together. And he sat right in front of me. And he was his charming self that made me laugh. And um, we had our first date at the law school prom in October, October 13th. And uh, we were married 10 months later. During our courtship, um, we were referred to Bob Stansel for some marriage counseling. And he met with us for a few sessions um, before we were married. And uh, we thought we had it all figured out and quickly found out we couldn't have been more wrong. It didn't take us very long, entire marriage, to know that even though we loved each other very much, we didn't know how to love each other in any sacrificial or unselfish way, in any godly way. You know, we would call our friends and our family for um, affirmation of each one of us. You know, I would call my people if I wanted them to tell me I was right. He would call his people if he wanted to hear he was right, and we did that a lot rather than talking to each other. Within a couple months of being married, uh, I went back to Bob and explained to Bob why this was not going to work. Uh, I don't remember a lot about our conversation, but I remember very distinctly a verse that Bob shared with me during our time together, and that was from 1 Peter uh, 3.7. And it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker vessel and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And for whatever reason, that verse totally resonated with me and uh, really wrecked my heart for Heather and uh, revealed to me um, how inconsiderate I had been of her, uh, how disrespectful I had been of her. I left that meeting with Bob with some hope. Um, I knew that it was going to take a lot of work for us to resurrect what was essentially um, a dead marriage at that point. And he came back to our little apartment and um, sat me down and told me that he was not going anywhere, that he loved me, and he was going to fight for our marriage. And I told him I loved him, and um, he would have to tell me that frequently, and um, not just tell me, but show me too by being there when I would wake up and when I'd go to bed. He earned my trust, and those walls started coming down when um, I knew that I could trust him to be there and not walk out. I think for me especially, it's been really important to teach our daughter, Addie, who is four, almost five, who sees divorce um, around us, that we are always going to be mommy and daddy, and we are always going to be married and living under the same roof. It may not always be pretty, but we're going to love each other and we're going to forgive each other, even though we may not like each other some days. So we're trying to instill in her um, that mindset that you commit to someone when you love them and that she can be secure in her home with her mom and dad. 
Us being here today is not the result of anything that Heather and Josh did. It's a result of submitting to the Lord and allowing Him to be the Lord of our lives and letting the Holy Spirit stir our affections for one another and for Him. And through that, the healing has happened. I don't think that Heather and I, when we got married, ever imagined that the way that we love each other today was even possible. Uh, and I know that that is from the Holy Spirit allowing us and stirring our affections for one another. Guys, the worth and the work of God is seen in marriage when we recognize that the gospel is a point of marriage, but it's also seen in marriage when we realize that the gospel is the power for marriage. There's a common reality in every human marriage. And that reality is that there are two basic problems in every marriage, a husband and a wife, right? Two broken individuals entering into a deeply divine covenantal relationship that sets a standard of love and submission and grace and forgiveness and patience and humility and the list goes on and on. It paints such an incredible picture that our sinful hearts cannot live up to it all the time. So what does that mean for us? Are we doomed? Is our marriage destined to fail if we're in that relationship? By by the grace of God, the answer is a resounding no. And the reason why is the gospel. Jesus alone has made it possible for us to live with one another in a way that shadows his death-defying, grace-filled, sacrificial example of how he loves us. It's the power of the gospel that makes it possible for us to live our lives in a way that reflects the greatness of the relationship of the love of God that he has for us and that he's demonstrated with us through the power and the the story of Jesus Christ. And so how does the gospel speak to this? Well, it only works when we see our marriages as a shadow of a bigger relationship. And in this passage in Ephesians, I think that there are five things that I want to point you toward that I think that we see here that aren't just about our human marriages, but they're point, Paul is pointing toward them so that we'll see what's behind them and what's greater than them, and that is God's love for us. And, and they're this. I think that, first of all, that there's an example of willing and joyful submission Right In verses 21 through 24, Paul's talking about submitting to one another, but he's doing it in the context of Jesus Christ having submitted to the will of the Father. Hebrews 12, uh, 2 says this, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He looked at an instrument of torture and with joy walked to it despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Because he knew that the purpose of it was for God to be glorified and for our good. We could not be reconciled to him without him submitting to the will of the Father. And he says to us, take that as an example and submit to one another for their good and for the glory of God. The second thing that I think that this passage in Ephesians shows us is selfless sacrifice. 
verse 25, I mean, he says, husbands, love your wives. How? Not just with this happy-go-lucky, I'm gonna bring you flowers and candy every day, love. No, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? Selfless sacrifice to put the needs of the other before your own and not just their personal felt needs, but their greatest need, which is to see and reflect the glory of God. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is the example of selfless sacrifice. God, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was God in the flesh. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death his own life for our sake, even death on a cross. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, just a few verses before this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we wanna know what it looks like to live selflessly in a selfish, selfless, sacrificial way. We don't have to look any further than Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And that becomes for us the power to do that. I also believe that there's unfathomable forgiveness, the canceling of debt that's there. He talks about the sanctifying of the church, the washing by the the word. Then that only comes through an incredible act of forgiveness that's brought about by the sacrifice of Jesus' blood on the cross. And I believe maybe there's no greater example that our marriages can become of how this looks to the world than in this particular area here, this idea of incredible, forgiveness when you've been wronged that you would not see that the point would be that you would gain the upper hand but that you would reflect the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of your Savior that you would know that there's a bigger end to the conflict and there's peace that comes from the shed blood of Jesus and that it's the power in which you can live that way out among one another. In Colossians, Paul certainly points to this. You, you were dead in your trespasses, he says, in the uncircumcision of your flesh and God made you alive together with him. God made you alive. He forgave all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us and its legal demands. And he set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. So you can forgive. It's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard to live a life of forgiveness. But your Savior lived that out so that you could stand before him and be called his child. And so certainly we can reflect that and the power to do that comes only through the gospel when we see it's about him and not about ourselves. The fourth thing I think is unending love. We see it, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This, this love, this knitting together of the two to be one It's unending love that we see over and over again in the pages of scripture in Psalm 103, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. It does not go away. It cannot be dimmed. It cannot be snatched from us. If the blood of Jesus is on us, then God's love rests on us no matter what. And that's the kind of love that God says we should have for one another in the context of marriage. The no matter what kind of love. 
The love that can't be taken away when our feelings are hurt or the love that can't be snatched from us when we've been wronged and we think that we ought to get an apology. The love that endures all of that because that's what's been demonstrated for us through our God and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And lastly, unmerited favor. Grace. Jesus loved us when we were unlovable. And if he can do this, though he's perfect, right? We're not. Remember, two broken people. If Jesus, who is perfect and deserves our utmost attention and our greatest worship, if he can in grace love us when we're unlovable, then certainly he can give us the power to do that toward one another. Romans 5 tells us while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We didn't deserve it. We want anything good in us, but that's what God did. He showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then maybe one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament, in the, in the epistles, 1 John 3, 1. John just breaks out and says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are if we've tasted forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That is grace unmerited favor that we did not deserve. And God says in marriage, we're called to that toward one another. Unmerited favor. Why? Not because we deserve it, because we don't, but because it was given to us through Jesus Christ. So as a final point of application, let's reflect the goodness of God in our marriages by demonstrating this God-inspired love and grace and forgiveness. When God's the object of worship and the focus of our marriage and when we view marriage as an expression of the work and the worth of God, a shadow of what's casting that light into this world, right? When we see marriage as a reflection of that, of a much more vivid reality, the reality of God's love for his people, of Christ's love for the church, then we'll find our marriages more satisfying and more purposeful, even when they're really hard. Some of you may be in this room and you're thinking, I can't, I can't grasp this. You don't know where I'm at. Yes, I do. For me to stand in front of you and talk about a picture of marriage that looks like this, it's not me. I can't live this way. I can't muster up enough strength to love Ellie this way. But God, through an incredible act of sacrifice, can give me a new heart. And he shows me an example of how it's possible. And you may be standing on the brink of hopelessness, but you are not hopeless. If there is breath in you, Jesus is a rescuer. And he can take Heather and Josh's story all the reasons why this isn't gonna work. And today, Josh can stand before you and say, I love Heather and Heather loves me in a way that we did not even know was fathomable, was possible. Why? Because of the grace of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ. And that's what marriage is. It's what it points us toward. It's what it's about. It's about us seeing marriage as that, 
the beauty of what God says and worshiping God because of it. And it's about us living that way in grace and mercy and forgiveness with one another so that other people look at our marriages in the context of the church and they marvel and God is worshiped. Marriage is an act of worship. And we've been given the privilege of being a part of the demonstration of that by the joining of two people and the living of a life that demonstrates the love of Jesus Christ for his church. What a remarkable thing. Words can't adequately describe it. And yet, it's God's pleasure to give it to us and then to give us the power to live it out. So it's to that end that we pray. Father, would you stir our hearts to be amazed at the picture of what you've done, that you would give us the privilege of demonstrating the gospel through the union of man and woman. God, would you give us hearts that see that the point of our marriage is not about our own satisfaction, though remarkably when we live for you, we're satisfied. God, today, if there are those that sit in this room who desperately need you to drop your power into their lives so that this could be true, God, do that. Break down walls. Speak clearly to our hearts that we might esteem you for what you've done and we might see marriage as that greater picture of your love for us, your children. God, you are great and you're worthy of worship and praise. And so would you let us live our lives in a way that we reflect that in the way we love one another in our marriages, but also would you let our marriages point others toward you so that you might be worshiped. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for it. It's in Christ's powerful name that we pray these things. Amen.